Amen. What an encouraging time in singing this morning. Amen. Well, take your Bibles and open with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. A couple of times a year, I get a Sunday like this one. What I mean is, I just finished an extended series through the book of Joshua. It's our normal habit here, if you're visiting, to walk through books of the Bible. We do that, so the Lord sets the agenda for the day. And uh, I just finished that last week. Next Sunday, Lord willing, I begin a seven-part series on the story of the prodigal son, which I'm really looking forward to. And then we'll do a few things for Christmas. Uh, But I've got here a Sunday in between. And I love these Sundays. Because it's an opportunity for you, for me to just share with you a little bit about what God is stirring in my heart. Uh, God is continuing to stir in my heart as I'm seeking the Lord uh, for myself, for my family, and for you as a church. And I'll enjoy these days that God gives us every once in a while for me to just talk to you about some things the Lord is stirring up for me, which I believe are for you as well. There is no chapter of the Bible God has used in my life more in the last 20 months of being your pastor as Matthew chapter 6. I've mentioned that to you before, but the Lord continues to bring me back to this and to call me personally uh, to bank my life and my ministry upon the promises in Matthew chapter 6. So this morning I want to take some time to walk through it with you. I have been a parent now for almost 15 years, which means this. I know absolutely nothing about parenting. It's funny, I, I was with a group of guys this last week, and uh, we were talking about parenting, and as we were talking about this, what I realized is this, is that a group of people gathered together talking about parenting is like Jesus telling the disciples to feed the 5,000. They're just looking at each other going, I don't have anything, you got anything? Like, I got nothing, we're just kind of winging it here, praying, trusting the Lord. I had a, a friend say one time that it's like the abundance of shared poverty. It's an abundance of people saying, I've got nothing, do you have anything? And just together we share all of our abundance of, of poverty. But I, I will tell you, I have made some discoveries along the way. One of the things I've discovered is that most frustrating and yes, maybe even annoying parts of having little children actually becomes one of the things that's most refreshing. There's this one area of the life of small children in which you're longing to get over with. And then as they get older, you realize, wait a minute, I wish I had that back. What it is, is it's just the authenticity. It's the the simplicity. It's the what you see is what you get with little kids. It's kind of knowing where they are and where they stand and what's going on inside of them. And the reason is, is because when they're little, they just let it known. I mean, just think about a baby. You don't have to wonder how a newborn baby is feeling. It's clearly mad. You would be too. I mean, nine months, you're just in this kind of warm, safe, dark, cozy environment, and everything's great in there. You don't have anything to worry about. No one's really bothering you. And then all of a sudden, in a very dramatic fashion, you come into this world. It's bright. It's cold. You're soaking wet. They grab you and kind of dry you off with a towel. And your first experience in this world is somebody holding you up and taking pictures of you naked. You'd be mad too. You know, you just wonder why all of us need counseling. And by the way, we all need counseling. I think it's because, like, that's literally our first experience in the world. Here, take a picture of me naked. That's it. Like, that's how we start this whole thing. That's why we've all got issues. And so they're mad, right? 
And then you take these babies home and they tell you this. The pediatrician says, listen, if the baby, cry, if, if the baby cries, then it's, it's pretty much one of three things. They're either hungry, uh, they've got a dirty diaper, or they're in physical pain. And it generally is one of those things. It seems to be one of those things all the time, but it's, it's generally one of those things. There's just kind of a simplicity. They cry and you know that something's going on and you test all three of those things. And then when they grow up a little bit and become toddlers, there's still some of that there. When a toddler is happy, they just laugh and play. When a toddler is sad, they just cry a lot. And then when a toddler is pouting, they just, they just, they just do it. They just pout. And, and then when they're, they're really upset, they lay on the ground in Target and kick and scream and pout. And it's super frustrating and you wish it would stop, but at least you know where you stand, right? And the reason I say that someday you wish you had those days back is because it doesn't last very long. There is a day in which you're wondering where anybody stands. Like, you're wondering what's going on, and you wish you just had some sign of what was really happening inside. And the truth is, is the older we get, the more that kind of simplicity and authenticity changes. And the reason is this, is because as we grow up a little bit, we start to make some discoveries. We discover things like shame. We discover things like hurt. We discover embarrassment when we do something and someone laughs at us and then all of a sudden we start to be concerned that everyone is thinking about us when in reality they're really not thinking about us much because they're all thinking about themselves. But we start thinking, wait, other people are thinking about me and so I start to be worried about how I respond and what comes out of me and then all of a sudden what you realize is what you see is not what you get. And the older we get and the more that we experience all of these emotions, the more that seems to increase until we get to a point in which not only do those around us not really know who we are or where we are, we often don't even know who we are and where we are. We just learn pretty quickly how to act. We learn how to play the part. We learn how to put on a mask and while everything is chaotic inside of us, we have this ability to just kind of walk out into public and Everything is just okay, and all of a sudden we discover that no one knows exactly who we are and what we are. And we just lose that childlike simplicity, that childlike authenticity, that willingness to be seen and known for who we really are. And because that happens to all of us, it's the reason that Matthew 5-7, through this Sermon on the Mount, is so important for us. Particularly Matthew chapter 6. Because all of us have a tendency to act, the Sermon on the Mount, particularly Matthew chapter 6, is calling us back into a bit of childlike authenticity and simplicity, where we get back to the point in which what you see is actually a reflection of who we are, and we stop acting, and we stop playing the part, specifically in our spiritual life. Look what it says in Matthew 6, 1. If you're there, say amen. Jesus says this, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now that word right there should call us to attention at the very beginning when Jesus says, beware. It's a word that means to pay attention to this, to watch out for this, to be careful of this. Of what? Of playing the part of acting, of, of wearing a mask, of, of hiding and acting like we're something that we're not. 
The word for that is a word that's going to be used three times in the next 16 verses. It's the word hypocrisy. A hypocrite is, is someone that just acts. They, they play the part. They're a pretender. They're, they're a counterfeit. They act like something they're not. And their motive in verse 1 is this. In order to be seen by other people. That's always the motive for the hypocrite. They're living in such a way because they know that people are watching and they want to make sure that everyone around them thinks there's something. The problem is they want people to think there's something that they actually are not. And if you'll read particularly through the book of Matthew, get into chapters 20, 21, 23, after you've kind of gone all the way through the rest of the chapters, you will soon discover that Jesus loves to expose the hypocrites because Jesus hates hypocrisy. And you know what? So do we. We all hate it. We hate it when we see it in someone else. There are very few things that stir up more emotion in us than hypocrisy. The problem is this. We all have a little bit of it in us. Every one of us, if we're honest, play a little bit of the part. We act a little bit. Some of us more than others, but all of us have a little hypocrisy. And so the Lord, in His grace, brings us to Matthew chapter 6 to remind us of what a big deal this really is. I mean, the presence of this warning right here, as Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples, and the crowd is listening, but it tells us in chapter 5 at the beginning that he's speaking to his disciples, reminds us of the subtlety of hypocrisy. The subtlety, because he's telling them to watch out for this. Meaning that it's very possible for this to be something going on and you don't even realize it's going on. So Jesus brings his disciples and says, listen, you see all of these religious leaders around you. They're playing the part. And let me just say here, there are always some who don't want to be a part of the church because they believe the church is filled with hypocrites. Let me say something. The church may be filled with hypocrites, but that's not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is calling us back to authenticity. And by the way, anyone who calls out a hypocrite is also a hypocrite because all of us have hypocrisy in it. But the way of Jesus is calling us out of that. And right here is proof of that. He's warning us. He's saying, listen, this is a very subtle thing. It, It happens to us at a very young age. It becomes a reality in us. And all of a sudden we wake up one day and realize, wait a minute, we have been playing the part, which can I just say is absolutely exhausting for a very long time. Can we just all acknowledge this simple truth? It's much easier to look holy than to be holy. Can we just can we just acknowledge that's true? It's like me with running. This drives my wife crazy. All of the holy, righteous justice in my wife. Every time someone asks me if my, I run, she wants to say, he does nothing. He doesn't run at all. I don't know why it is, but somehow God made me look like I run. And so people ask me if I run, and I'm here to bear testimony. It is much easier to look like I run than to actually run. (laughs) And I'm just going to keep riding it as long as it goes. It won't last forever, but I'm going with it now. You know, it's the truth for all of us in our spiritual lives. All of us have the same thing. It's so much easier to just come into this place, particularly in a church like ours, where you could go a year without anybody asking how you're really doing. To act like something that you're not. It is a subtle sin that creeps into our hearts and it's scary. And Jesus, knowing the subtlety of it, says to his disciples, watch out for this. It's subtle. Watch out. But not only does he remind us of the subtlety, he reminds us of the danger. 
beware of this. The word beware not only is calling us to look a little deeper in our life, but it's showing us that there's danger. Uh, Matthew 6, 1 is like this massive warning sign that is flashing to us when we open it, saying it's so easy to become a hypocrite. So watch out and beware because this is a dangerous thing. It's dangerous because it has eternal consequences. You see, look at what it says here. It says, there are those who are practicing their righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. A hypocrite wants one thing. They want attention. They want the reward of making other people think they're holy and righteous. And here's the reason it's so tempting to be a hypocrite. Because most of the time you can get exactly what you want. If you're just good enough and consistent enough, most of the time you can get the one thing you want the most. And that is people thinking you're holy and righteous and walking with Jesus. But here's the reason it's so scary. It's because that's the only thing you get. They will have no reward from their father who is in heaven. So if that's the only thing you want, let me tell you something, you can get it. But you know the sad thing about living for that? is because people don't care about you near as much as you think they do. They're not super concerned with what's actually going on in your life. We should be more, but most of us are more concerned with ourselves. And so it is so easy for you to walk this road, playing the part, and failing to realize that this has eternal consequences. You do not want to continue to live, getting other people around you to think that you're much better than you actually are. Matthew 6 is clearly a warning for us of the subtlety and danger of hypocrisy. But what I love so much about it is it's not just a warning for us. Matthew 6, listen, is a way out. It's a pathway. Because in the next 16 verses, the Lord is going to give us some practices that are there to help us make sure that we're authentic. They're kind of like a mirror to hold up and to see our heart, which is so often hard to see. I mean, who can discern their own heart? Well, the Lord is about to give us three practices that have an incredible ability to show the authenticity of our faith. The first one is in verse 2. He says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 5. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Verse 16, when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Three practices of righteousness, giving, praying, and fasting. Now, I don't know why it is that Jesus picked these three. I think, in one way, these three expose the religious leaders of the day because the most common practices of pious Jews in this time was giving, fasting, and praying. And so, by holding these up, he's exposing them publicly. But I don't think it's just about exposing the Pharisees. I think it's about exposing us. I think still today, here we are, a couple of thousand years later, these practices still have an incredible way to reveal to us who we really are. These practices of righteousness are here to lead us out of hypocrisy and into authenticity. 
Now, let me just say real quick what I mean when I talk about practices of righteousness, because that's what these are. He says, I want you to practice these things. There are some who practice for the wrong reasons. I want you to practice for the right reasons. These are practices of righteousness. Now, when it comes to righteousness, we must know that righteousness is never earned. Righteousness is received. Righteousness means you are morally right and pure. God demands righteousness in order to be in his presence. If you want to go to heaven, you've got to be righteous. The problem is there are none righteous, no, not one, Romans chapter 3. None of us are righteous. None of us are morally right and pure. All of us are sinners at our very core and by our very nature, spiritually dead, disobedient, and doomed, Ephesians chapter 2. But we must be righteous in order to have a relationship with God. So what happens is, is Jesus comes and lives a perfectly righteous life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, verse 21. Jesus, who knew no sin, what does that mean? Perfectly righteous. Did everything right. Morally pure and right before God. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us. Meaning, Jesus is perfectly righteous. We are holy and completely to our very core sinful so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us that we might become righteous. Meaning this, that on the cross of Jesus Christ, here was a perfectly righteous man dying a criminal's death. And in his death, all of our sin, hold on just a minute, all of our sin was credited to his account. So he was completely sinful in that moment. All of our sin put upon him and his righteousness was credited to our account. So now I, who am fully and completely sinful at my very core, is now seen before God as perfectly righteous because the perfect life of Jesus was credited to my account. That deserves at least three amens. That's a really big deal. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only reason we have anything is because Jesus earned it for us by his perfect life and credited it to our account. Do you know that when God the Father looks at you as a believer, he sees perfect righteousness? You say, well, how do I, how do I get in on that? Well, Romans 3.22 says that it's by faith. Do you come to a moment in your life when you realize that you have no righteousness of your own and you can't earn it, so you trust Jesus' death on the cross as the payment for your sins, and by faith, you receive his righteousness, and then you are declared righteous. Now, here's the problem. At that moment of justification, meaning you're declared righteous, you don't look very righteous. Is that true? You are righteous, but you don't look very righteous. You become a disciple. You're just not a very good one. None of us are. So the Bible says, I want you to practice your righteousness. Listen, not like a basketball player practices free throws, but like a lawyer practices law. Or a doctor practices medicine. You're a doctor and therefore you are practicing medicine. You are a lawyer, therefore you are practicing law. What Jesus says is this, you have now become righteous, therefore you are practicing your righteousness. Listen carefully to this. Hypocrisy is you trying to act like something you're not. Christianity is you trying to act like something you are. Does that make sense? Hypocrisy is you acting like something you're not. I'm acting righteous, but there's no righteousness in here. Christianity is, wait a minute, I'm righteous. I'm going to act like I'm righteous. I'm going to practice righteousness. And Jesus gives us these three practices of righteousness. All of them meant not only to cultivate our soul before the Lord, 
but to guard us from hypocrisy and lead us out of hypocrisy. But here's the real test. Look at verse 3. He says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. If you mark in your Bibles, secret and reward are the two key words. Verse 5 or on his first six, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 17, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. So now all of a sudden, I'm not only confronted with these three practices, I'm confronted with the motive of these practices and all of a sudden, I have to ask myself this question. Will I do these things if no one ever knows but God? Now, all of a sudden, these are not simply ways to cultivate my spiritual life. These are tests of the authenticity of my spiritual life. Because listen, if I don't have any real behind the scenes personal practices of righteousness, there's a problem. If all that I have is what you see on Sunday morning, meaning I come up here and I do this thing, but, I, but I'm not praying on Monday or I'm not praying on Tuesday or I'm not sacrificially giving or fasting. If I'm not seeking the Lord, wouldn't you acknowledge that's a problem? If there is no real behind the scenes secret spiritual life, something's wrong. And I'm not trying to bring any unnecessary condemnation. I'm just saying that all of us have this hypocrisy and the Lord is trying to lead us out And it's these practices that lead us out. Now, I don't know exactly why, but it is interesting that the first one Jesus brings up in verse 2 is is giving. Now, I I know that from now on, I'm probably going to get no amens the rest of the sermon. I don't think there's a coincidence Jesus brings this one up first. I'm not sure if there is a better test to the authenticity of our faith than our money. Jesus constantly uses this as a way to to see who we really are. I mean, look at what it says in verse 2. When you give, and then look what it says in verse 3. When you give, he's speaking to his disciples, assuming that this is a part of their lives. Giving is one of the most basic practices of every believer in Jesus Christ. If you came to Christ and no one led you in the path of what it means to follow Christ, you may have not heard this, but if you came to Christ and were in a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, faithful church, they should have taught you that one of the most basic practices of following Jesus is beginning to give immediately. Now, every time I teach on this, I, 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 I believe in what's called first fruits tithing. It's the whole principle from the Old Testament. What it means is this, first fruits meaning I don't wait till I see how much I have at the end of the month and then give something to the Lord. There's no faith in that. First fruits means from the beginning of the check, right when I get it, I'm going to go ahead and give and trust the Lord for the rest. That's first fruits. That's the only way given is faith. And I believe in first fruits tithing, which I believe that the principle from the Old Testament teaches us that a great place to start is at 10%. Now listen, some of you are ready to come after me. I know it. Every time I've ever taught on this, someone comes to me and says, Pastor, that's Old Testament law. I'm not under the law. I'm under grace. Just know I already know you're feeling it. 
I get it. You don't have to say it to me. If you just read Matthew chapter 5, you would be aware that it doesn't seem there's any place in the Old Testament in which Jesus requires less in the New Testament. The Old Testament said you should not commit adultery. The New Testament says don't lust. The Old Testament says you shouldn't murder. The New Testament says don't even hate. But here's the bigger thing. I think the reason that the New Testament doesn't explicitly teach tithing is because the New Testament assumes tithing. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, dill, cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Listen, you're tithing these things. That's what you should have done without neglecting the other things. There was this assumption that this was a part of our lives. I think this is a basic part of following Jesus Christ. At our men's breakfast on Thursday, someone came up to me afterwards and we were talking about that little place in 2 Samuel 24 in which David says this, I will not offer to the Lord a sacrifice that costs me nothing. That's a good word. Because it's easy to offer the Lord a sacrifice that doesn't take any faith. And if it's not done by faith, it's not pleasing to the Lord. And I I was talking to him about the fact that when Andrew and I first got married, we committed and we got married, we were going to give 10%. To the church. Now let me tell you something. When we got married and our joint income was $35,000 and we were tithing off of the gross, not the net, that, that like $1,100 check with $150 out of it was, was, a, was a sacrifice. Like that felt like we were like walking on water, like that we'd biggest faith ever. Like it's a big deal. But listen to me here. The older we got and the more money we made, all of a sudden 10% wasn't as sacrificial as it used to be. And 2 Corinthians chapter 8 says this. It says you should grow in the grace of giving. We want, have you noticed, we want to grow in every grace but that one. And we made a commitment that we would begin to increase our percentage of giving because your giving has to cost you something. It's got to be an act of faith. You're feeling this. It's prayerful. And you're walking by faith and giving. And he's expecting this from us. When you give, he says to us. The reality is is that I think the reason that he chooses this one first is because of how good of a test it is of our authenticity. Let's let's think about this together. I think, first of all, giving tests the authenticity of our confession. If you want to write that down, that's something good to write down. It tests the authenticity of our confession. So when you come to Christ, here's your confession. Jesus is my Lord and Savior. You don't come to Jesus just to save you from sin and hell. You come to Jesus because you believe he's the way and the truth and the life. And so you make him now the center of your life. Forever, you've been the center of your life. It's all about you. Now it's all about Jesus. And it it takes time to, to, to make that a reality our whole life. But coming to Jesus is making Jesus the center of our lives. And if we're not giving, what we're saying is this. We're taking what is probably the biggest area of our life. And we're saying, Lord, I want you to be Lord of everything, but not this. Like you can call the shots about anything, but don't touch my wallet. Giving says you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, but there's just this one area you don't want him to touch. It questions the authenticity of your confession. Look over a few verses down at Matthew 6. 21. Jesus is going to go on and say, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. And look at what he says in verse 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Meaning, if you want a way to look at the condition of your heart, check your giving. Because your money is going to point you to where your heart really is. I don't feel like I have to say this, but I just, I need to get it out just to make sure we all understand it. You realize Jesus doesn't need your money. We got that? Like, the son is not sitting at the right hand of the father, looking up to the father and saying, Father, you do remember we increased the budget by 15% this year. And I, I, it's, not, it's not looking like it's coming in. I think you need to stir up in Pastor Josh's heart to preach on giving because I'm, I'm feeling it. He does not need your money. Every penny you have, he gave to you and he can take it right back. He does not need your money. You know what he wants? He wants you. He wants your heart. And so what he says is this, I want you to make giving a regular practice because it's a way to regularly check your heart. And anyone who cares about your heart, listen, should care about your giving. You know what's kind of freeing for me right now is our giving last year, we gave over 700,000 over budget. We're like $58,000 over budget now. I don't need your money. The church doesn't need your money. But God wants your heart. And I'm pleading with you as a way to check your authenticity of your confession to be a giver. But not only does it check the authenticity of your confession, it shows the authenticity of your motive. He says this in verse 3, but when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Here, here's what makes giving so challenging. And you know this is true. No one knows. I don't know. I don't check anybody's giving. The only time we check giving is if you're nominated for some position of leadership in the church. We send your name to the finance office. They just tell us if they feel like you're giving sacrificially and consistently to the church. I don't know what you're giving. I don't know. No one else is going to know. It is possible to come in here week in and week out and live on church welfare. And you're not playing a part. You're not giving. And no one else knows it. But isn't that a test of authenticity? Would you give even if no one ever knows it? And this is why he says to us, I want you to give in secret because the father who sees in secret will reward you. This is one of these areas in which you can be completely disobedient and no one is ever going to know. But listen, if I'm acting as if I'm right with the Lord, but I'm not giving consistently, something is wrong. It reveals the authenticity of our confession, the authenticity of our motives. The last one is this. It reveals the authenticity of our faith. There is a promise of God here, and I'm so thankful for the song we sang a minute ago, that God has never failed us. He always keeps his promises because there's a promise here. Here's the promise. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. That's a promise. He says it three times. He says it about giving, prayer, and fasting. The promise is this. There is a God who sees in secret, and he will reward you. Now, now listen. I've thought about this a lot because I really believe that God has been calling me I want my ministry here at Prince to be a testimony to the truth of God's promise that God rewards those who fast, give, and pray. God's calling me to do those three things more than I ever have before in my life. I want these to be real and authentic in my life. But listen, I, I would like to know what the reward is first. Like, I'll, go ahead and map, like, Lord, okay, you say, what is the reward? Because if I knew the reward, I'd be much more likely to do it because I, I would have the reward before. The problem is, if he told me the reward, there'd be no faith. 
Now, it's still right and good to do it for the reward. He's motivating us by reward. He's just not going to tell us what the reward is. The faith is this. I'm believing that even though I don't see it, God's going to reward those who give and fast and pray. Listen, the righteous are those who live by faith, and you must believe that he is, Hebrews eleven six, and the rewarder of those who seek him. God rewards those who seek him. And giving, particularly first fruits tithing, is a massive test of faith because you're saying, Lord, I'm going to give this. I don't have the rest of the month figured out, but I'm going to give this because I believe you always reward those who give. I just have to be honest with you. Like This is an incredible way for us to put the Lord and take him at his word and say, Lord, you, you've said that this is true and I'm going to step out and believe it. And giving is always a burden for me. Because the, the truth is, about 25% of our members don't give anything. And then, our biggest category of givers is those who give between about one to three or four thousand a year, which meaning they're just kind of like throwing Jesus a bone. Like they're just giving a little token here. Hundred here, hundred there. There's no thoughtfulness. There's no faith. And I feel like I need to say something else to you that I don't think I need to say, but I'm going to say it. I'm also not on commission. You know that? Like, I didn't, like I, don't, I, don't, I didn't sign a contract where I get bonuses. Like, I, no commission here. Like, if you give more, I don't get more. The church is doing fine. You have to understand my motive. Here's my motive. I want you to experience the reward, and I want our church to experience the reward. I mean, imagine our giving capacity if everyone gave. But it's not even about that. Even more than that, imagine how God would bless you and your family and our church if we said, Lord, we're going to believe you by faith. We're going to give, believing that you reward. Imagine what God would unleash in this church. Imagine if our church was a testimony to the truth of what God says here, that we could say to everyone, when you just pray and fast and give and take God at his word, God shows up and shows off. That's what we want. And I want my life to be a testimony to this. I, I really struggled this week. And I'm not going to do this because I, I think it could come across the wrong way. But I really debated whether I should tell you what Andrea and I give simply because I want you to know that God is faithful. I just, I just want to be a testimony that God rewards those who seek him. That's it. I just, I just want to bear testimony that you can't outgive God. It's impossible. And I want you to know it. And I want you to experience it. And I want your heart to be fully engaged with his. I want you to know the reward. So my plea this morning is simple. Go after the reward. Go after it. I had the opportunity this week to speak to 3,500 college students. And I really wasn't planning on doing this exactly. But the second day I spoke to them, I took them to this passage and I said this, imagine if at 18, 19, 20 years old, you decided to go ahead and start taking God at his word because if you don't do it then, you're never gonna do it later when you make more money. If you get a check for $120 that you've worked really hard for, give the first 12 back to the local church. Take God at his word and just see how he rewards. Because I believe it. I believe that God will reward those who do it. I'm just pleading with you because I want you to experience God's fullness. I so desperately want our church to experience God's fullness. Take him at his word. He will reward those who seek him in private. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.